right, we'll turn over to Habakkuk. We'll be beginning a series through the book of Habakkuk. Start naturally in Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning verse, with verses 1 through 4 this morning. Um, so let's pray before we get into God's Word. Our God, I ask that you would teach us to actively wait on you. And I pray this morning that we as your people would grow in faith by your Word and by your Spirit, and that uh, our faith would find expression in, in the way we engage the world and in the way we approach you, our God. So I ask that you would enliven our zeal to your truth this morning and that your word and law would be dear to us. Incline our hearts and our minds to seek a knowledge which accords with um, your perception of reality and teach us to learn and to lean on your promises, especially to rest upon he whom all of your promises find their yes and amen, our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray. All right, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. If you would read silently as I read aloud, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. This is the word of God. He may be seated. This book is a bit of a conversation between Habakkuk and God. A bit of a back and forth. um, As... David Baker points out that uh, Habakkuk was faced with a situation where his systematic theology of God didn't match up to his perception of God. So, uh, this is a very relatable book, at least for me. It is a glimpse into a conversation between God and one of his prophets, but as we move through the book, we have to always keep in mind that it's also a, a published uh revelation of God of himself as well. It's not just a a peek behind the curtain like a a Joseph Smith kind of vision that we kind of hear about from from the guy. This is published by God in his canon work. So we don't know much about this man, Habakkuk, who received this oracle from God, um, but the context seems to indicate that he lived and wrote during the time of King Jehoiakim of Judah. We can see from the context that Habakkuk wrote when wickedness was abundant and injustice was abundant in Judah, and that time of wickedness coincided with the rise of the Chaldeans, the rise of uh, what we might call the Neo-Babylonian or the Babylonian Empire. So as far as wickedness is concerned, um, King Manasseh was exceedingly wicked, but he was too early. He was before the Chaldeans. And then Manasseh's son, um, Josiah, was a good king. He instituted Um, moral and religious reforms, so it was probably not during the reign of Josiah. Josiah was killed um, in 609 by Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Megiddo, and Necho was on the way up to Carchemish to kind of help out 
the uh, the Assyrian army, and, and Josiah intercepted him, which he shouldn't have done, and he was killed. And then um, King Jehoiakim took over for Josiah. Now, just uh, Jehoiakim followed uh, in his grandfather Manasseh's footsteps. He was a wicked king. If you notice the striking similarity between our passage this morning and a description of Jehoiakim from Jeremiah 22, Jeremiah 22:17, but you, he's talking of Jehoiakim, but you have eyes and heart only for dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. So Jehoiakim's reign matches well Habakkuk's description of corruption. And 605, B.C., a Chaldean commander named Nabopolassar. Michael and I were talking this morning. These Assyrian and Chaldean guys have the best names. Um, But Nabopolassar defeated Pharaoh Necho at Carchemish, which was kind of the last Assyrian stronghold. And when Nabopolassar died, his son, Nebuchadnezzar II, took over for him and was crowned king. And the Neo-Babylonian Empire was was properly born. The, the Chaldeans were raised up as a people at that point. So all of this history kind of coincides, and this is where we find the book of Habakkuk. This is where uh, Judah's king, Jehoiakim, promoted wickedness in the land. The Chaldeans are being raised up to a proper empire, and this empire would, uh, three decades later, haul Judah off to um, captivity. As we'll see, the context of all this plays heavily into the themes of the book. Um, Habakkuk has really two big questions in the book. The first that we'll get into this morning is, how can the covenant-keeping God allow lawlessness to run rampant so long among the nation of his people? In a few weeks, we'll get into his second question, is that how can the covenant-keeping God allow his people to be overrun and destroyed by a more wicked, more rebellious nation? So we'll come today to his first question, how can the covenant-keeping God allow lawlessness to go unchecked amongst the covenant people? I didn't plan this, but uh, it actually, really, this question fits in as a perfect application after kind of coming out of a long series talking about uh, false teachers in the church, because we might ask ourselves a very similar question. You know, we've gone through all of this. Okay, there's wolves among the sheep. Um, This is how we're supposed to handle them in such and such a way. And, And, you know, of course we're supposed to protect ourselves. But really the question that may come to our minds is, why, for goodness sake, does not God smite them where they stand right now? Why does he allow wickedness to continue to afflict his people? Why does he tarry so long in executing judgment? It's a good question. It's a question that Habakkuk has. Habakkuk says in verse 3, Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you make me look at this? Why do you idly look at wrong? It's a strong question. (laughs) Accusing God of idleness, right? It's a strong question which I suspect many of us have lurking kind of in the catacombs of our soul, but we may not be brave enough to give voice to it. 
in a world with abundance of unrighteousness, and in, in a church which still contains tares, still contains wolves, we're going to have these types of questions come to mind. So as we continue today, I want us to see um, kind of three primary exhortations that we can glean from Habakkuk. And there are three teaches us about a proper approach to God when we have uh, difficult questions like this. So the first exhortation is that we should have a zeal for God's law. Have a zeal for God's law. You, you notice here Habakkuk is not nonchalant about the wicked things going on around him. He's grieved. He's greatly distressed. You might recall from from Second Peter what Peter says about Lot. He says, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them, that is Sodom and Gomorrah, day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. I think we have to ask ourselves, are we tormenting our righteous souls over the lawless deeds around us? Or are we nonchalant about them? Does it ever grieve us to see God's commands trampled? Or are we ever like Ezra, who, when he heard that after all of God's grace in bringing the remnant back from captivity, they went out and married foreign wives, just like they'd, they'd always done. And Ezra pulls out the hair from his head and his beard and tears his cloak and cries out in confession to God. That's the kind of zeal from which Habakkuk's questions proceed here. He he cries out to God for justice. His soul aches for and longs to see righteousness in the land and amongst God's covenant people. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence and you will not save. His pleas have really, it seems here, he's been praying a long time. It's gone on long enough that he's frustrated. You get a sense of his frustration. Why are you not listening? Why do you idly look at wrong? Why do you just sit there? He really cares about this. And I would even say that he's angry about it. The question we may have and probably properly should have is that okay for him to speak to God that way? Is he overstepping the bounds of proper approach to God? And my first thought as a person who appreciates the, the sovereignty of God and the kingship of God is Romans 9.20, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Or another one, one of my favorites um, from Job chapter 40. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? So we might rightly ask, who does Habakkuk think he is to speak to God this way? And really there are many answers to this question, and we'll get into more of them as we go through Habakkuk. But one answer is that Habakkuk's zeal is properly placed. His zeal is properly placed. That is to say, his righteous anger is inflamed over the right things, namely, the trampling of God's law. He says, So the law is paralyzed and never goes forth. 
for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. He's concerned that the law is being trampled. He's not whining like like the prophet Jeremiah did, who who kind of cursed the day of that his mother bore him. You know, he's not bemoaning his plight. He is disturbed and angry on behalf of God, and that's important. Calvin here, and listen to this quote. This is a, a stunning quote. The prophet was not here impelled by a carnal passion as it often happens to us when we defend ourselves from wrongs done to us. For when any one of us is injured, he immediately becomes incensed, while at the same time we suffer God's law to be a sport, his whole truth to be despised, and everything that is just to be violated. We are only tender on what concerns us individually. And in the meantime, we easily forgive when God is wronged and his truth is despised. But the prophet shows here that he was not made indignant through a private feeling, but because he could not bear the profanation of God's worship and the violation of his holy law. He's basically saying Habakkuk is upset on behalf of God. His zeal is properly placed. And Calvin's application here in the next paragraph is spot on. He says, Let us hence to learn to rouse ourselves up, for we are very frigid when the ungodly openly despise and even mock God. As then we are too unconcerned in this respect, let us learn by the prophet's example to stimulate ourselves. So he's saying we, we should follow Habakkuk's example. We should see his righteous anger and we should recognize that oftentimes I'm more concerned with my own feelings, that if somebody attacks me, I'm upset. But if somebody attacks God, I can easily let it go. And he says, we should be roused to a righteous anger. In our relativistic uh, society, we are (laughs) the ones thought frigid or arcane or unspiritual if we become inflamed at at the trampling of God's law. Or um, even this happens within the church. I had a conversation with with a, a brother recently about um, the, the whole issue of women holding office. And while he agreed with me on the principle of the matter, his response was basically, uh, most people around here don't even know what we're talking about. Implying that it's really not all that important, that, that perhaps it was a, an ivory tower doctrine, for maybe a doctrine for the theologian. But for me... When I see a woman behind the pulpit or occupying the office of elder, that sparks a righteous anger in my soul. Not not because I don't think they're capable, but because it is an affront to God's very plain teaching in Scripture. It's a flagrant disregard for the express commands of God. In my own experience, if we talk about obedience, the, the retort is always, well, it's not about rules, it's about relationship, right? And while I agree to a point, how can we have a relationship with God without a deep, abiding love for His commandments? I mean, I might say I have a good relationship with my Father, but if I reject all of His rules, all of His wisdom, all of His teaching, that relationship is at best strained and probably broken. It's not a good relationship. So the scriptural reality is a holy zeal for God's law is evidence that we do indeed love the Father. 
Habakkuk's questions proceed from a zeal to see God's law upheld with honor in the land. And they also proceed from a holy grief when he watches God's people trampling all over God's word. So the first exhortation was to have a zeal for God's law. Now the second one, which we glean from Habakkuk, is that we need to seek God's understanding. Seek God's understanding. So if we truly do have a zeal for God's law and and trust in God's perfect righteousness, we will seek to align our uh, systematic theology with God's reality. Um, There's a distinct... Um, uh, there, there's a disconnect between Habakkuk's understanding and his perception. And, and that bothers him, and it should bother us. We, we don't just let it lie when there's a disconnect there. When we see something wrong, we should seek to correct it. I talked to my sister Autumn yesterday, and I asked her for permission to use a, an illustration of her. Um, but my, my dad has told me that, that raising Autumn, and even now... Um, if he's challenging her on something or if he's trying to instruct her on something, sometimes she'll fight him tooth and nail on it and then all of a sudden she just does it. She does what he asks her to do. And and what she's doing in those instances, and and this is what she admits as well, is that she's trying to figure things out. She's trying to solve it. She's almost testing his propositions with every possible argument to see if it's valid or not. She told me she she still does that, and she did it with her boss this last week. This is part of her um, system, which we all do that to 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 a degree. But um, but what we have to, and, and I think that's in a sense what what Habakkuk is doing here is he's saying he's crying out with these questions, recognizing that God has the answers. Uh, and we need to be careful here, though, because there's many missteps we can take. I, I don't think it's a sin to come before God and say. This is what I see in your word and your promises. This is what I see in my world. And the two things aren't matching up for me. Help me to understand. But the important question here is, who are we trying to move? Am I going to try to shift God, Zach word? Or am I trying to shift Zach, God word? If we're accusing God of injustice and putting our own perception of justice above him, then we sin. But if we're saying to God, fix my systematic theology, help me to understand the truth of this situation, because clearly I'm confused here. If we're seeking God's understanding of reality, questions like Habakkuk's are in fact very righteous, because we're seeking truth, and there's few pursuits more holy than the pursuit of truth. And Habakkuk turns to the only proper source of truth. Calvin, one more time. I think I highlighted like his whole commentary in this passage. It's just brilliant. A few good times to read it. Uh, he said, We now then see that the prophet can be justly excused, though he argues here with God, for God does not condemn his freedom, this freedom in our prayers, but on the contrary, the end of praying is that every one of us pour forth his heart before God. Habakkuk cries out to God, for help and understanding. How long shall I cry for help? He says. We can bring our questions and concerns like this before God um, with this type of boldness if we are in it for God's glory and if we are in it to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. 
we can cry out in prayer over the injustices in the world. How long, O Lord, will you watch our nation slaughter its children? How long will you withhold justice while our Chinese brothers and sisters are being beaten and thrown in jail? How long will I continue to struggle with this same sin? I think we can even legitimately apply these principles to our everyday problems, to our work, to our relationships or our health. But it's always righteous to seek God's understanding. Now, (laughs) beware if you pray this way because you have to be ready for God's answer. (laughs) And and we're going to see that that is something we may not always be ready for as we go through Habakkuk. Pouring out our hearts before God honors God because it expresses an expectation that God does indeed keep His promises. Which is our next and our third exhortation. Expect God to keep His promises. Expect God to keep His promises. Habakkuk's um, confusion here is in part well-founded. His expectations rest on a knowledge of God's promises and on God's character. For example, Psalm 12, which he probably would have um, known. Psalm 12, 5 through 8. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace, on the earth refined seven times. Thou, O Lord, will keep them, that will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. So there, there it is. There's a promise. There's an expression of God's character that he will preserve his people, that he will take care of his people. He's a saving God, a God of justice. In verse 13 of, of Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk even says that God's eyes are too pure to look on iniquity. So Habakkuk approaches God here, and he approaches him as um, the God of the covenant. He says, O Lord, O O Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, O Yahweh, the covenant name of God, how long shall I cry for help when you will not hear? Yahweh is the God who has promised blessing for covenant obedience and, and cursing for covenant disobedience. And now in the land of Judah, disobedience prevails and where is God? Notice Habakkuk does not say, um, will you ever, Lord, will you ever do this? He says, how long, O Lord? His expectations pr- uh, proceed from an expectation, a holy and righteous expectation that God will act according to his word. And, and if we believe God, we will learn to wait on the Lord, as painful as that is. I think that's one of the hardest things in life is to wait upon the Lord. I observe that older people are better at it than me, than younger people. But patience does not mean um, inactivity. Uh, faith waiting on the Lord, that does not imply that we apathetically lie on the couch waiting for something to happen. We can wait actively. An active faith calls on the Lord expectantly. 
I think my son Cohen remembers like every word I've ever said. <laughs> he holds to my promises. He holds me to my promises to the letter. And he has the unfortunate position of being the son of a sinner who doesn't remember all of his promises and who doesn't keep all of his promises. But our Father, the Heavenly Father, is completely consistent. He remembers every last jot and tittle of his promises. And he never fails to keep one of them. So the proper approach to God is one which expects God to act in accord with his promises. We might ask ourselves, well, what's the point of praying God's promises? He's going to accomplish his promises anyways, right? But the better question is, what's the point of praying outside of God's promises? For we know then that we'll receive that for which we've asked. Great great parable in Luke 18, if you want to turn over there real quick. Luke 18, 1 through 8. says in Luke 18, 1-8, And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will, will he find faith on earth? Interesting. He said, "Just he'll give justice speedily." But as we learned in uh, in Peter, that that uh, God's <laughs> to God a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. So God's timing is not our timing, but God can be relied upon because He is the just Judge. He will come through. And Jesus urges us to implore Him and not to give up imploring Him. Even as Habakkuk says, "How long will I cry to you?" we can have confidence that he will live up to his title of just judge. So Habakkuk sought justice from Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, because he expects him to fulfill his promises. God's promises are trustworthy. We can see see that reality that God's promises are trustworthy perhaps more clearly than Habakkuk can. And that's because the covenant-keeping God, the I Am, became flesh and dwelt among us. As Paul says, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Him. And that's why we utter our amen to God for His glory. So it is by Christ's blood, the blood of the new covenant, that we can approach God with even a greater sense of confidence than Habakkuk had. Because His death tore the temple curtain in two that we might approach God through Jesus. Hebrews six seventeen through 20 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have as this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the same book he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Our God is a covenant-keeping God, so pray to Him as though you expect Him to keep every single one of His promises, and He will not disappoint. So how do we approach God with our hard questions? I think we see here from this passage we can approach Him with a holy zeal for God's law and the purity of His law. Secondly, that we seek to understand God and understand reality from God's perspective. And third, that we approach God with a confidence that He will fulfill every last word of His promises and that we can, in a sense, ascend to the throne of grace with confidence on the merits and blood of Jesus, who is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Amen. Take our hymnals now and stand to sing. O Lord, be thou my helper true. This is a new one for us, so we will struggle through it as best we can and and, um, heed the words because they're beautiful. Did you want to play it once through?